This morning we are going to be celebrating communion together. Therefore, I am interrupting our study on 1 Samuel for one week, and we will be returning, Lord willing, next week in the continuation of 1 Samuel where we have left off. Communion is a celebration of our shared commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show forth the Lord's death until he comes. The very purpose of communion is to be illustrative of that great hope that we have in regard to Christ's death, resurrection, and return. In preparing our hearts for communion, I'm going to be reflecting upon the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular, staying true to the gospel. In our text this morning, Paul is speaking to the Galatians, some of whom had departed from the gospel. Paul is amazed that the Galatians are moving away from the gospel. If you look at verse 6, it gives us the background that we need as we consider these, these verses. Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He's astonished. For the Apostle Paul, it is almost unbelievable, unfathomable, that someone would depart from the gospel. This word, astonished, is a word that is used in association with marveling at a miracle, to stand in awe of a miracle, of that which is hard to to believe. Paul finds it hard to believe that anyone would ever depart from the gospel because the gospel is so wonderful as we are going to see in just a few moments. So he's amazed. However, not only were they moving away from the true gospel, but they were doing so at such an alarming speed. If you look at verse 6, it says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly, so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This departure had taken place over an extremely brief period of time. Virtually overnight, things had changed. This should serve as a warning to us all that quickly situations can change. We might feel secure today in our church's confidence in the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, but the reality is that in a very, very brief period of time, things can change rather dramatically. So we need to be on guard. We need to be vigilant. We need to be circumspect. Paul states that there is only one true gospel in verse 7 not that there is another one there there isn't another gospel he says that they have turned away from the gospel to something that kind of mirrors the gospel it kind of is associated with the gospel but Paul makes it clear that there's only one true gospel. There aren't variations or shades of the gospel. There's one gospel.
And that gospel is to be adhered to no matter who might tell us otherwise. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. It's the same as saying, let him be damned. Let him suffer eternal loss if they're going to preach a gospel other than the gospel that I have preached to you. The idea here is that some highly respected individuals began to depart from the gospel. There is a very stunning example to which the Apostle Paul makes reference. And he takes significant steps to rebuke even Peter for the sake of the purity of the gospel. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, that shows us the foundation of this concern of departing from the gospel. Galatians chapter 2, reading at verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So there became this division with those Jews that were wanting to continue with the practice of circumcision, verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray with their hypocrisy. You can't get much more prominent individuals in the early church than Peter and Barnabas. Verse 14. But when I saw their conduct was not in step, and now notice these words, with the truth of the gospel. When I noticed that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? The Apostle Paul saw that Peter's conduct had been inconsistent with the gospel. And if it wasn't going to be addressed, he saw it as a means of the gospel being corrupted and people being led astray. So that's rather striking, and it shows the severity of the situation. For the Apostle Paul doesn't just rebuke him quietly. He doesn't just take Peter aside and say, say, Peter, I, I just want to talk to you for a moment about what you're doing here and how it's not appropriate. But he confronts Peter to his face, and he confronts Peter openly. Uh, this is for everyone to read. This is for everyone to see. That's how significant it is that the Apostle Paul is going to actually rebuke Peter and Barnabas publicly for the conduct that they are engaging in, which is going to undermine the true gospel if it continues. So this morning, we are going to look at six reasons that we are to retain our confidence in the gospel from Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Six reasons why we are to retain our confidence in the gospel from Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Now in the original, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, 
is one long sentence. One long sentence. So everything in this, these verses are intricately entwined and serve the same purpose. And we're going to see six reasons to maintain confidence in the gospel and not to depart from it. The first reason we are to retain our confidence in the gospel is because the gospel is the source of true blessing. If you look at verse 3, it says, Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. The gospel is the means by which grace and peace are mediated to us. That's how we are going to experience God's grace and God's peace. First, there's the blessedness of grace. That is the unmerited, undeserved, non-earned blessing of God. In John chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus said, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of grace. That is God's extension to us of his favor, that he is so kind in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins and in our place. So this is God's grace to us. Also, the blessedness of peace is mediated through Jesus Christ as well. When it's talking about the peace here, it's talking about being at peace with God. For in our sinful state, we are at enmity with God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That now we are sons of God. Now we're brought into a relationship with God through the faith of the gospel. Negatively, negatively, those who do not espouse the true gospel, but espouse a false gospel, their result is not grace and peace, but condemnation. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, As we have said before, so now I say again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Accursed. That is the exact opposite of receiving grace and peace. This is condemnation. This is damnation. This is ultimate and final rejection. So the gospel brings grace and peace. Anything other than the true gospel results in one's lost condition. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. The second reason that we're to retain our confidence in the gospel is because the gospel has its origin in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. For notice it says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace, and now these words, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel has its origin in God the Father. The gospel is God the Father's plan and design. In Galatians chapter 4, we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
There's that peace again that we have with God, the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. But it was God's plan. It was God's, the Father's decision for the gospel to come to us in the person of the second person of the Trinity. God sent forth his son. The gospel was not the product of the Apostle Paul or the early church or some kind of philosophical reflection of mankind. The gospel isn't some wonderful concoction that the early church came up with or it isn't just the teaching of Paul. The emphasis is that the gospel originates with God, that he is the one who has given to us the gospel. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, it reads, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For the gospel had been communicated through the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul says that this gospel that he declares was not of his own invention. He was not taught it. He did not receive it from anyone, but rather it was given to him directly through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. We know at that time that he had a heavenly vision of Jesus Christ, who said to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? We also know from the book of Corinthians that Paul had received numerous revelations, numerous visions, of which he was given a further and more clear and complete understanding of the gospel. But the point of it is that this gospel comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The third reason that we're to retain our confidence in the gospel is because the gospel has its foundation in the salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ not only conveyed to us the gospel, but Jesus actually accomplished the gospel. It was his death and resurrection that is what makes the gospel efficacious. It was the fact that he indeed died for us. You notice it says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, gave himself for our sins. That conveys a number of ideas. First of all, Jesus voluntarily gave himself up for us on account of our sinfulness. The scripture says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the wages, that which is earned, is death as a result of our sin. But grace, which is not earned, comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in our place. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, as Paul unpacks 
this particular point. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. So Christ bore that punishment. He bore that curse in dying on the cross for our sins. Jesus gave himself for us in the sense that he died in our very place. He took upon himself the punishment of which we were deserve, deserving. He bore the consequences of our sin. He gave himself for our sins on account of our sins in order to remove our sins. In Isaiah chapter 53, starting at verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement of our peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Through Christ bearing the consequences of our sins, we have peace. We have righteousness. Our place with God the Father is healed. We also know that Jesus voluntarily gave himself up for us. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. This charge have I received of my Father. So when it says that Jesus gave himself for our sins, it is speaking of what he had done voluntarily, that he was not forced to go to the cross. Here again is this wonderful value of the grace and peace that is given to us, that Jesus was not coerced. Uh, Jesus was not forced. Uh, it is not simply that the Roman legions came and gathered him and helplessly he becomes a martyr on the cross. But he was in control of the entire situation as demonstrated in the fact that the soldiers, when they came to arrest Jesus, had to fall back on the ground. Uh, they could do nothing that Jesus did not allow them to do. He gave himself for our sins. The fourth reason that we are to retain our confidence in the gospel is because the gospel purpose is to deliver us from sin. The message of the gospel is filled with hope. The age that we are living in is described as an evil age, if you look at verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. The present evil age is not just 2,000 
21 is not just talking about the last 20 years and how things have gone downhill. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he's speaking to them of the present evil age that was 2,000 years ago. The present evil age extends all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The present evil age began when Adam and Eve ate from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin entered the world. And death on account of sin, all kinds of evil, all kinds of corruption, mankind's failure to worship God as he ought, all of the moral decay stems from that act of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, we live in a fallen world, meaning a world that is experiencing the consequences of what we refer to as the fall when Adam and sin, excuse me, when Adam and Eve, quote unquote, fell into sin, when they ate of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now this age from that time until the present time is an evil age that's filled with misery, that's filled with heartache, that we experience all kinds of terrible things because of this period of time in which we live when we're under this curse, when we're under the fallout of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, as well as our own sin. But there's going to be another age. There's going to be an age to come in which there's going to be a deliverance from sin. Not only our own personal sin, but sin in its entirety. Every aspect of the curse of the fall is going to be removed. And that's what was in the mind of God the Father when he sent his Son into the world. And that is to change this present evil age into an age of righteousness. That future age is referred to in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes and he is offering a prayer that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And was the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him far above all principality and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. There's this future age in which Jesus is going to be over all principality, all power, all might, all dominion. Any authority that you can imagine is going to be completely subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate final hope of our salvation. The full effects and the benefits of the gospel have not yet been experienced. We long for the day when Jesus Christ returns and reigns in true righteousness. 
in the book of Isaiah, concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and even forevermore. So there's going to be this rule of Jesus Christ in absolute justice and righteousness so that all sin is banished. And now we are going to live righteously and holy with God's people forever and ever. That is the purpose of the gospel. Fifthly, the fifth reason we are to retain our confidence in the gospel is because the gospel is in keeping with the will of God. The gospel is in keeping with the will of God. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. <clears throat> and now these words, according to the will of our God and Father. This is God's will. It is not as though forgiveness needs to be coaxed out of a God who is infinitely opposed to granting forgiveness. This is very closely related to the whole idea that the origin is in God. The thought here is that this is what God wants. This is what God desires. Therefore, we can have confidence in the gospel for it doesn't in any way go against God's will. It's not antithetical to God. It's exactly what God purposed, what God has designed. The whole gospel is in keeping and part of God's will regarding mankind. The phrase then underscores the fact that Christ's redemptive work and mankind's salvation are to be understood in the context of God's will and fatherly concern. Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I came down from heaven to do the will of the one who sent me. This was the Father's design. This was the Father's purpose. This is what the Father had decreed. Therefore, we can be assured that the Father is pleased with what has taken place and that he grants salvation. John 6, 39, continuing on, it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I raise him 
on the last day. So there is the promise. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on Jesus and believes has everlasting life. That's why we can have confidence in the gospel. This is God's will to grant us eternal life through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the sixth and final reason we are to retain our confidence in the gospel is because it brings honor and glory to God. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel brings glory to God. And we could elaborate on that theme in a number of different ways. But I've limited myself this morning to three thoughts as it relates to the gospel bringing honor and glory to God. The first, and what I think is probably what is alluded to primarily in the book of Galatians, is that the Jewish people thought that to honor the Lord Jesus Christ was to dishonor the Father. That to elevate Christ and to worship him in the manner in which we worship the Father, the Jews took that as being blasphemous. That that was somehow degrading to the Father because it was sharing the glory of the Father with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus addresses that idea in John chapter 5, starting at verse 20, where he says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So it is appropriate to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to put our faith and confidence totally in his salvific work for a failure to do so not only dishonors Christ, but it dishonors the Father who sent him. It dishonors the will of God. It it dishonors the plan of God. It dishonors the accomplishment of God. This is God's doing. Therefore, to honor the Son is to honor the Father. And a failure to honor the Son is a failure to honor the Father. Further, the New Testament repeatedly teaches that God the Father is honored through the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the striking portions of Scripture comes from Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2 it says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who took upon himself no reputation, but made himself in the likeness of man, 
And being in found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee would bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Every knee would bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. It was the Father who exalts Jesus. It is the Father who's pleased with Jesus' obedient death. It is the Father who raises Jesus from the dead. It is the Father who exalts him at his own right hand. It is the Father who teaches us to worship Jesus to the Father's glory. That the Father would do all of this for our benefit, for our salvation, for our deliverance from this present evil age. God is to be honored. God the Father. Of course, we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But God the Father is to be glorified in his role in the gospel. In the book of Romans chapter 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We should just marvel at this plan, this this incredible solution to mankind's condemnation. The answer to the question, how can God be just and righteous and at the same time forgive sin? How can God hold mankind accountable for their sinfulness while at the very same time walking them into his presence? A God who is holy, a God who is just, a God who is righteous, a God who cannot even look upon sin. What a wonderful plan that his son would bear the consequence of our sin. That son, because he is completely holy and righteous, and righteous could not be held down because of that sin, but came forth in his righteousness and his holiness and is ushered into the very presence of God so that we, too, can be ushered in the presence of God, having our sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who came up with this plan? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who can earn their salvation? Who can offer a gift that is equivalent to the Father's gift of giving us his Son, 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the great gift. What gift can you offer that is equal to that gift? And the answer is there is none. There is none. There's no other way. There's no other solution. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So as we prepare our heart for taking communion this morning, I just have two thoughts for you. The first is this. Have you personally responded to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? For me, as I read the scriptures, the book of Galatians is extremely profound in its declaration and explanation of the gospel. It's a unique book in that way, much like the book of Romans. But the most striking verse to me in all of Scripture when it comes to salvation is this, Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. NES, Christ died needlessly. If it were possible for us to be saved in any other way, why in the world would God send his son? If it were possible for us to be saved in any other way, why in the world would Jesus die on the cross? Why would he put himself through that? He who voluntarily gave himself, the one who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will but yours be done, the one who sweated great drops of blood as he anguished, as he thought about going to the cross, if it was not necessary for salvation, why in the world did it happen? And the very fact that it did happen teaches us there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Paul says clearly, any other gospel is damnable. Romans chapter 4 says, What should we say then to these things? If Abraham were justified by works, he has something in which to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. For man is not saved by the works of the law, but by the righteousness that comes through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is that salvation comes through his death, his resurrection, his coming again. This new age of the forgiveness and removal of sin and its entirety. Our having grace and peace with God, our being accepted by God, is all based on the work of the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. And it must never be moved. It must never be changed. 
We must hold on to it. We must guard against any assault on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first is, have you placed your faith solely in Jesus Christ as your Savior, as the means for which you are going to have eternal life, that you will be in the presence of the Father, trusting in nothing that you have done, only in what Jesus has done. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, I implore you this morning to receive this wonderful gift of grace and peace that is given to us in Jesus Christ. Don't reject the gift of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. And secondly, if you do know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then guard your heart, guard your mind. (laughs) Don't allow anything or anyone to dissuade you from your soul confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we have six reasons to be maintaining true to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, we begin by praying for anyone here who perhaps has not yet placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one and only way of sins to be forgiven and to enjoy peace and grace of God. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that would like to receive that gift of eternal life and know that they are going to be in your presence forever and ever in a place without sin, a place of complete righteousness and holiness and justice and goodness, a place where there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. Lord, if there's anyone here, I I pray that you would grant to them that faith that is necessary to trust in Jesus Christ. If if you want to receive that gift, would you just quickly raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to be aware and be praying with you and and at some point talk with you individually. Anyone here this morning that wants to receive Jesus Christ, would you raise your hand so that I can see it and I'll acknowledge it. Our Father, we pray for us as a congregation. Help us to maintain the truth of the gospel. May we never be allured. May we never be led astray by someone that would somehow view themselves as an authority and we accept that authority and and we somehow listen and begin to question the truth of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you revealed the gospel to us, that it is not mankind's invention, that we didn't come up with this, that this is in keeping with your will, this is in keeping with your plan, this is in keeping with your sending your son, this is in keeping with Jesus who came to do the will of the Father, this is in keeping with Jesus who willingly gave himself for our sins. This is in keeping with your raising the Son from the dead. This is in keeping with your receiving glory by what Jesus had accomplished. This is in keeping with your desire to exalt Jesus, that he be worshipped. 
and that he would be exalted far above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Lord, give us confidence, and may we feed upon the communion table. May it nourish our spiritual health. May we say, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. Lord, assure us in our innermost being that the gospel is absolutely true and it is our sole confidence in relationship to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, we have the opportunity to partake of communion together. You may remove your masks as we prepare to partake of the elements. And these elements remind us of that gospel that Pastor just preached about from Galatians. In 1 Corinthians 11, the passage we often cite for this particular time, hints at elements of the gospel as we celebrate. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered for you, to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So at this time, please remove the plastic clear layer and take the wafer. That is meant to stand for the body of the Lord Jesus that was given for us. This that was given to the Apostle Paul, not something that he created, but a gospel that he received and that we receive and pass on. Let's pray together as we prepare to partake. Heavenly Father, as we hold this bread, this wafer in our hands, we're reminded of the body of the Lord Jesus that he gave willingly, not against his will, but willingly, uh, so that we might be forgiven, that through his sacrifice on that cross, Lord, that we might be saved. And so it is with gratitude that we partake and we desire to proclaim this gospel and to keep it and to remember the Lord's death. In Jesus' name, amen. Take and eat. Now, if you would, take the foil portion and peel it back. And we're given this cup to remember the blood of the Lord Jesus. That same passage says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in that passage, we're reminded of his death. Yes, in this blood, in this cup that symbolizes that blood, but also of his resurrection, as we said, until he comes. We look forward to his coming again, knowing that he is raised from the dead, that he is alive. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we partake of this cup, we're reminded of the blood of the Lord Jesus that was shed for us, for our forgiveness of sins. Thank you, God the Father, for this plan of salvation that you have instituted and that through faith we are able to receive, not of our own good works, not of anything that we have done, but through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So as we partake, we do so together in communion with one another and in proclamation of that gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Take and drink.